Well, hello there, and welcome to Being at Work. I'm your host, Andrea Butcher, and today's episode represents so well the spirit of what this show is all about. Leaders showing up with courage, just as they are. We are hardwired to be in relationship, and the best leaders nurture their relationships. The conversation with today's guest challenged me to reflect on how I talk about and think about my relationships, honoring each of them regardless of the stage they're in. Tim Robinson sits on the executive team of the Lumina Foundation as Vice President of Administration and Partnerships. Lumina Foundation is an independent, private foundation committed to making opportunities for learning beyond high school available to all. Tim also serves as adjunct instructor at Butler University, where he's taught classes in business law, negotiations, and nonprofit governance for the past 20 years. So his influence and experience is vast. And during our conversation today, Tim will provide insight on how to lead without direct authority by establishing individual relationships, nurturing and focusing on them. Most of us can relate to the challenge of being charged with influencing something and people who we did not directly manage. So listen in as Tim shares the importance of your mindset and moving through the challenge together as you compel people to move. So I've had quite the journey in my career and it started, I was a lawyer working for a bank in Indianapolis, and there were a series of mergers and acquisitions back when I started my career. And I had a great job. I learned a ton as a lawyer for a bank. I didn't manage anybody, but people would come to me for legal advice. And over time, what I discovered was as important as the people were to me, the issues that I was focused on, were really surrounded around either the bank making money or the bank not losing money. And that just wasn't very fulfilling to me. And I had the privilege of working in an office that sat on the 25th floor of an office tower downtown overlooking the city. And one day I remember thinking that if I'm still doing this 25 years from now or 10 years from now, I'm going to jump out this window. So <laughs> I decided I was going to make a change. And at the time, there were lots of mergers going on. And so I was the youngest attorney in the first bank out of seven. The bank got acquired. I was the youngest out of 48. It got acquired again. And I was the youngest out of 135. And I was fairly confident I was going to lose my job because who needs that many attorneys? So I decided I was going to make a career change. And I decided that I wanted to do something that was more in connection with people outside of just the clients I had in the bank. And so I decided to move into investments. And so I started working for a small bank at the time in Columbus, Indiana, called Irwin Union Bank. And the bank was started by the family that started Cummins Engine. And so that was the big employer in this little bitty bank in Columbus, was growing outside this small community of 30,000. And I was responsible for taking the bank's trust investment and insurance businesses outside this small footprint in county of, of Columbus, Indiana. And when I first started there, my role was to be what they called at the time a product manager. So I didn't really manage anybody. So I was really managing the process and managing the products. And the bank failed. And that was really sad because I would have probably retired there, but it failed in the recession. And my kids were young and I was traveling a ton. 
and decided that I was going to make a career shift. And at the time, still wanting to maximize my my experience and my education, I decided to stay in investments. And so I started working at PNC. And then I found myself again, not sitting on the 25th floor, but this time the sixth floor and having the same thought of, if I'm doing this five years from now, I'm going to jump out this window. And coincidentally, I had the opportunity to, I got a call from a woman I'd worked with at Lumina Foundation. And she said they were looking for someone to head up their grants management function. And if that person had a law background or a financial background, that would be a benefit to them. And so I applied and to my surprise, they hired me. And so that's how I landed at Lumina. And it's been one of the most transformational experiences because as a nonprofit, we're focused on this singular mission to expand post-secondary attainment. And I'm in a privileged position to, to focus on a nonprofit focus as opposed to the profit focus that I had in my previous career. So that missional aspect of the role is, is much more fulfilling. Yes. I, I had done some strategic planning for myself in all my years of business. I had written numerous strategic plans and I decided to task myself with the same process. And so I set out my core values. And from those core values, I decided I was going to have a personal mission statement. And then I was going to set specific strategic actions with respect to that, just like you would with a business. And that mission statement became the framework by which I started to make all future decisions. And so in short, it was to lead a spiritually and emotionally, and mentally, physically fulfilling life. And as job opportunities presented themselves, as different type of opportunities presented themselves, I would always walk through that framework. Is this spiritually fulfilling to me? Is this emotionally fulfilling and intellectually fulfilling? And if it couldn't have two or three of those, then I realized that probably wasn't the right um, opportunity for me. And when I came to Lumina, I went through that framework and I found it to be as fulfilling as any other opportunity I had. So that's the framework by which I try to make decisions. Oh, that's so good. Yeah, for me, that's the difference between living by default and living life by design. I mean, you took the time to really get clear on what would be fulfilling for you. So you had something to filter those decisions through. I did. And candidly, when you set about the task of identifying your core values, and if you're really honest with yourself and you reflect on, am I living the core values that I am publicly announcing and realize that you're not, that's very humbling, number one. And two, it gives you clarity and hopefully intention to live a different type of life. And what I learned as I was going through this process was I was not living the core values that I said were important to me. As an example, I was traveling a ton. I was gone three or four days in a particular week. I was still teaching. My kids were young. And I was not connecting with my wife or my children in the way that I wanted to. And so my decision to leave that environment and go to a bank that was not as travel required, that was a little bit more, I would say, was individual contributor as opposed to being a manager at that time. It was to allow me that I could stop working at five o'clock or six o'clock and then I could come home and spend time with my family. And that had not been my experience, even though I said that was what was important to me. So it became a real decision-making framework for myself. A decision-making framework. Well, and I also hear so much integrity in that, like having the courage to do the work 
and to to acknowledge that you know my life is not playing out like in the way that I espouse the things that I really espouse to be important to me are not priority. So well done there. I applaud you for that. That takes a lot of courage to do that work. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard work. And for anybody who's thinking about going through a similar process, I do think it requires some reflection time and you do have to set aside time dedicated to it. In my particular case, I started to journal, which um, I had not done up to that point. And I really committed to doing it over a two or three month period where every night I would journal before I went to bed. And that's what sort of gave rise to what am I saying that's important to me? And then I was able to distill those into words. So that was the process by which I did it. I couldn't do it over a weekend. It took me two or three months to come up with that framework. Yeah, that's so great. I I can relate to that. Several years ago, I did something similar and a little different experience for me. I recognized a value that I hadn't named as a part of that process. So, so much good can be done from really taking the time to step back and reflect on how are, how is my life playing out before me and what can I learn from that? Yeah. One of the things I did learn along the way was recognizing your value. If you would have asked me when I was in high school or college, would I have any interest in teaching? I would have said absolutely not because I didn't think I would be good at it. I didn't think I could add any value. And when I was going through my strategic thinking, I knew I wanted to get out of the practice of law but it wasn't law I didn't like. I just didn't like, uh, it's not like television where you watch these shows where the case is resolved at the end of the show. It's a lot of paper pushing and I did not enjoy that. I enjoyed the relationships that I had with the people I was working with. And one of the things that I set forth for myself was this intellectual fulfillment. I love the law. And so I decided I wanted to teach it. But I didn't know the avenue upon which to do that. I had done some teaching at Junior Achievement, but you go in once a week and teach these high school kids. And so I had a contact at Butler University, and I reached out to them. And coincidentally, they were looking to hire someone to do an adjunct law class in their undergraduate program. And at the time, the bank I worked for had originally agreed to let me do it. And then they said no, because it was in the middle of the day. And so when I called to tell them I couldn't do it, they said, well, As it turns out, we have an opening in our MBA program, which, of course, is in the evening. And so I started teaching, and I thought, well, I'll do this for a couple of years. I did it for over 20 years because I found it to be so intellectually fulfilling and rewarding. And the feedback I was getting from the students I had were, you're really good at it. And I think I was good at it not just because of the intellectual exchange of information, but because we were in a relationship. We talked about real things. We talked about circumstances. What I would tell my business students is, I'm not going to teach you how to be a lawyer because you're going to be a manager. What I'm going to teach you how to do is understand the law and how to have conversations with people about it. So you don't need to be the lawyer because you can hire lawyers for that, but you need to have an understanding of the law to be a better decision maker, which is what I would describe as the MBA program. It makes you a better decision maker. It doesn't make you an expert in accounting or finance or or the law. So I learned that I was I was good at it. Now, I don't know that I would make a career shift because there is a bureaucracy in universities and I decided I'd rather deal with a different bureaucracy. So I love going in and teaching once a week, having that experience and then still being able to do the other things in my career that I get to do. 
Well, and if going back to your personal mission, it feels like if you filter the teaching experience through that, again, it helps you make the decision that, yeah, this is something that is going to be fulfilling and aligned with that. That's right. Well, so, so relationship has come up multiple times in the conversation so far and not surprising. I mean, you are someone, my experience of you is someone with such an open, warm stance. Like you really care about people. You are interested in their stories. And so no doubt that has served you well throughout your career. You said earlier, you talked about in this product manager role that you were managing process, not people. But clearly you were doing a lot of influencing. I mean, you needed to get people to move and take action. So I suspect those relationships came in handy for you. Yeah, that's right. So one of the hardest positions I've ever had was to manage these various business lines, but not manage the people who were either operationally supporting it or selling the product. And how do you compel somebody to do something? I'm not a big hierarchical person anyway. So if I was their manager, I suppose I could instruct them to do it. But I have always felt that if everybody can move in support of a common goal and you use your powers of relationship and persuasion to move people towards that, you'll have a more successful outcome than just telling people to do something. And it's not that sometimes directions and decisions don't have to be made by a central person, but ultimately, if everybody is in support of the decision and everybody can come together in relationship, then I just think you have a better working experience and I think you have a better outcome for uh, the clients or the product that you're producing. And so I learned that actually earlier in my career, I was a lifeguard. I was a, actually, I was a manager of a swimming pool, which is how I met my, my wife now. And this is when I was in my late teens and early 20s. And I managed the swimming pool and I wanted everyone to be my friend. <laughs> and when you want everyone to be your friend, and of course we want that, we want those relationships. And then you say, hey, let's all go clean the bathrooms. And everyone's like, yeah, but I thought we were friends. So there is a, a line of there is a little bit of authority that has to be asserted. But really, if you can compel people that this is why we're doing it, and friendship doesn't have to be a burden for moving forward in decision making or in how the instructions were given. That was the balance that I learned early in my career so that by the time I moved up into the world and I was working in this bank, I learned from that experience of getting these lifeguards to do things when they're 17, 18 years old, that it was with my powers of persuasion and relationship to move them forward, not just me yelling at them to do it. So the lifeguard example is a good one. How how did that play out in this product manager role? Like, can you give can you give me a specific example of what that looked like? Yeah, here's an here's an example. So when I came to Irwin at the time, Irwin was facing some significant regulatory challenges in relation to its trust company. And this is a lesson for when someone recruits you for a position to make sure you ask all the right questions because I did not and I did not understand the scope of the challenges. So I readily agreed to take on the challenges and realized that I could not do all those things by myself. Not only are we having this issue with regulatory challenges, we also are having issues with transition. So we're migrating systems. So I had to get people to respond to regulators and I had to get people to respond to this transition and I have no authority over them. So I cannot tell them what to do. 
So it came down to establishing individual relationships, finding out what were the motivators for people. I learned a really valuable lesson at one point. There was a person who I would describe as being a part of the old boys network. That is not the network upon which I grew up in my business career. I'm not a golfer. I don't make sales calls on the golf course. Um, Nobody wants to go run with me for a sales call. So my (laughs) relationship development came in a different format. But I learned it was his way of doing business and he was very successful at it. And so I had to honor him. I had to help use his modality for reaching out to his clients and what motivated him with the framework upon which he found success. And I had to do that in every individual instance. And so learning what moves people to action and not trying to broadcast one central mechanism was really important in establishing those relationships. Yeah. What about those people that are that are walking around with a lot of armor, have a guard up? How do you break that down so you can like get in there and really understand those motivators? Those are hard. And I will candidly say that I, I don't know if I was walking around with armor, but I did have a a veil. And the veil I carried was, I'm not going to show, I'm a pretty even keeled person anyway, but I'm I'm not going to show my emotions. I've, I've described that there is a spectrum of emotions. You know, you can have sadness on the far end, and then you can have anger on the other end. And yes, I can move across that spectrum, but generally I'm in the middle. Some people can visit the spectrum and at a frequency in which I cannot. And so it's not just that they move it, they move across it back and forth more rapidly than I'm comfortable with. And so learning where people sit on that spectrum and trying to meet them where they are is is really hard. And just from my personal experience, sitting in the middle is not always where you're going to connect with people. And so that required me to have authentic conversations with people about maybe how I was feeling about something or something that I was angry about. For instance, I would have clients that would manage money for them And when I would manage money for clients, what I learned is, yes, they want you to help them understand the mechanics of managing their money. They want to know that you're performing well and they're going to take care, but they really want to know that they're going to be okay. And so that requires you to have intimate conversations around their fears for their children, their fears for their marriages, their fears for their parents. And I can't ask and could not ask a client to share all those intimate details about their life without sharing mine. I realized that I had to take off the veil, maybe take off the armor a little bit in order to really be in connection with people. And it's the same thing, whether you're your client or it's an employee, there's an appropriate time for it, of course, always. But if you're not willing to be vulnerable, then you can't ask someone to be vulnerable to you. And that was a big lesson. And I learned that lesson from Brene Brown's TED Talk about the power of vulnerability. And that was such a moving TED Talk for me because I could see myself as one of those people who did not really share what I thought. And when I was teaching in my classroom, I would never tell people what I thought because what I didn't want was someone to feel like their grade was dependent on whether they agreed with me or not. So I would always say, I'm not going to tell you what I think, but I want you to tell me what you think. Well, people aren't going to share if you don't make that qualification. So I would say, your grade will never be dependent on whether you agree with me, but I'm going to share with you what I think. And we can argue about it, we can disagree with it, and it will never impact your grade. And that taught me that it is okay for me to say, I'm angry, I'm sad, I'm hurting, I'm struggling. 
And when you do that, it opens up a door for people to have a different conversation. And it's a process, isn't it? It is. Being willing to do that without expectation or with without your your need for them to respond in a certain way. It's doing it for the sake of connection and relationship. And sometimes it takes time. It takes multiple conversations and multiple multiple vulnerabilities being shared before someone oh, feels safe enough that like, okay, this is a safe space for me to share a bit more. There was a, um, a guy, his name was Keith Feruzzi. He wrote a book called Never Eat Alone, I think. And um, he had a relationship pyramid and he talks about this process that it starts almost like um, the Maslow hierarchy of needs. Like you have to have this base connection with someone but it doesn't just start with um, this deep, intimate relationship. You develop it over time. And I think all of us have had the experience in this. Of course, I'll speak for myself. It annoys me. If someone calls me on the phone and I get lots of sales calls, people will call me because they want me to buy their IT product, for instance. Hey, Tim, how are you? As if they know me and they don't know me, <laughs> but they're using the sincerity. And I don't mind that people call me Tim. It's the disingenuous nature of them feigning this relationship that doesn't exist. Now, we may get there, but starting that way is probably not the best way to do it. Yes. Yeah. Being being authentic about where the relationship is. Exactly. That's so good. Okay. So I hear a lot of, there's some, some really good things in what you said about like how to come together in a relationship. They're really meeting people where they are to understand their motivators and what moves them to action, because that's different for everyone being willing to be vulnerable first, which takes a lot of courage and self-awareness. The, the thing that is inherent in what you said, but I, I want to just call out, like you also started with establishing individual relationships and that takes intentionality, doesn't it? It does. It takes time and so, so there's a mindset around, around that. What is, how would you name that? What's that mindset for you? I don't know that if I had a term for it, but I, what comes to mind is, you know, committees don't drive buses, right? Individuals do. So you have to be in relationship with whoever is moving forward. So if you're going to ask people to lead on something or be engaged in something, to collectively come together is great. But to make the ask and to get the connection, to get the motivation, it has to be on an individual basis. I think all of us feel better when someone individually approaches us and say, hey, I need you. I would appreciate your opinion. Can you join us in this? As opposed to some collective instruction, like it could be anybody. It's just bodies that need to fill um, the exercise. So to me, personally, I've always said one of the most important things for me is I know the role that I have in all the companies I work for. I know what role I have for decision-making and what role is for someone else's decision-making. And for me, it was always important understanding that I may not be the final decision maker to be heard. And if someone came to me and said, I just like your opinion, I give it and they choose to do something else, then I am fine with that as long as it's a moral decision. And so I think about how I appreciate it being individually asked. And so I try and do the same for others. And so I think you can only best do that on an individual basis. Yeah, what a great way to get them engaged. What do you think about that? Asking them for feedback. Okay, so there was there was language that you used that is really good. You, you talked about being in relationship. And for me, when I think about 
being in relationship with the different stakeholders in my life, like there's, it's almost like it be, that becomes a, a thing to nurture, right? There's, it's me, this stakeholder, and I'm creating a relationship, like being in relationship with that person obviously is different than others because of his or her needs and motivators and desires and preferences and style. And that's an interesting way to think about it. Yeah. And, and thinking back on this relationship pyramid, you will be at different stages of relationship with different people. And so I, I love everybody I work with, but I do have different relationships with different colleagues and just the nature of either our interests or you know, where we are in our stages of life, it doesn't diminish the other relationships that I have, but it's just with clarity, here's the level of the relationship that I am with this. this yeah, relationship. that's good. Well, and not judging one or comparing. I think we can get ourselves in trouble, can't we? Yeah, and it's not, again, a diminishment of that this particular relationship is different than this person's relationship, but there are a whole bunch of factors that go into that. One of the things that I think is helpful in, in developing relationship is sharing experiences and stories. And one of the exercises I used to do, I taught this class in negotiations at Butler. And one of the exercises I would do is I would ask each of the students, I'd give them these white note cards. And I would ask them on one side of the page or one side of the note card to write a short summary, like as if they were writing out their resume. Like, what do, what do you do? Sort of thing. And then I would pair them up with someone in the class and I would say, um, exchange cards as if they were business cards. And then what I would do is I would put up my resume on the overhead in a PowerPoint and I would say, here's my name, here's where I live. And, you know, I lived in this fairly affluent area. Here's the car that I drive, which is a nice car because no one knows that it's super old, but it just has the name of a nice car. Here's where I went to the prep school. Here's where I my job career, my titles. And it looks really impressive from afar. And then I would say, but let me tell you who I am. And I would tell a story about how my parents divorced when I was young and how my mother had these five kids as a single person and how she forego going to college so she could send us all to college. And it's my story. It doesn't have to be anyone else's story. But what you realize is that some people can connect with that story and other people will then feel comfortable sharing their stories. And so what I would ask the students to do is now you've talked about what you do. Now share the story with who you are. And what I always found is that once I did that exercise, the entire dynamics in the class changed because people then became supporters and advocates for each other, not just students sitting in competition for a particular grade or attention. And so modeling, I'm willing to share a story with you about who I am and why I do what I do. And you can take off the veneer of what you think I'm about just because of the degree that I have or the car that I drive was really impactful for creating the type of relationships that I wanted. Oh, that's so good. Well, and you do that in exercise format, but I, I mean, I can think about how easy that would be to apply. Like anytime you're meeting someone new or just asking questions and being curious about this, everyone has a story. I always love to get at which is why, I mean, I, I start this show with the same way every time. Tell me about the journey that got you to where you are today. It always leads to these interesting things in our guest stories. That's how I, um, you know, it's easy to fall back, especially when you live in certain communities where the default question is, where'd you go to high school? Because someone's sizing you up as soon as they ask you that question. One, when did you graduate? Where'd you graduate? Because they're going to know what cohort you were in and what side of town you grew up on, and then you're going to make a judgment about you. 
consequently. And so there's always that sort of element. But then to your point, you ask questions around, well, tell me, how did you how did you find this job? How did you find yourself? Why are you volunteering at this organization? Whatever the circumstance is, it's an invitation to learn more about that person's story. Yeah. And it creates connection. Who doesn't love to talk about themselves? <laughs> That's right. That's so good. Thank you for that. You know, you um, you model this so well. You know, it's not surprising that this relationship theme has come out of your story. One of the things that most attracted me to you when we first met, we were on a panel talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion in organizations right now and how important that is to create an environment where everyone feels like they can be who they are. And one of the things we were talking about is we're talking about training and the all the upsides of providing education and some of the things to be cautioned about. And your caution is such a simple concept, but I don't think a lot of organizations think about it. You said, you know, before you do any education, focus on the relationship, like get people talking and building relationship. Like only then is any education going to be meaningful or helpful. Yeah, imagine, you know, the teachers that are most successful with students is because they have relationships with them. You can stand up in front of a room and provide information, but if it's not received, there's no connection and you can't have the connection without the relationship. So I think that applies particularly when you're talking about challenging issues and people have different perspective and experiences around race and equity. It's inherently a challenging subject. And to try and have a training session or a discussion around it without being in relationship, I think, is where we see a lot of conversations derail, where people just want to be heard as opposed to really being engagement. And so that's why I do think relationship building is the core to so many other aspects of fulfillment uh, in life. Yes, taking the time, taking the time to see people, to ask questions to expose a bit more about who you are, to encourage them to do that. Those are the key takeaways. The other thing I just want to acknowledge in what you said that is so, so good is to honor each of your relationships where they are. That's a, that's a big takeaway for me today. You know, even that language, people saying like, oh my gosh, I've got such a great relationship with this person. Like, well, what do you, what do you mean by that? And why aren't, like this is it because it's easy? <laughs> is it because they're like you? Like, yeah, I, I, it's gonna, I, it's gonna challenge me. This conversation will challenge me to think about how I even talk about my relationships, and certainly how I think about them. So, I, I love that it causes you to think about it, and I had to think differently about my relationship, my, my personal relationships, and my, my wife and I started dating when she was seventeen. I was the manager of the swimming pool, and she was the lifeguard. Actually, she was not seventeen. We met when she was 17. We started dating when she was 19. Um, and we've been married 24 years. And as most relationships, they evolve as you have children, as you have jobs, as you have all these births, deaths, etc. And there's a tendency to think that when you're in a long-term relationship, people will ascribe that, well, you must be soulmates to you. And there's whatever pressure that comes with that. And my wife and I decided that, at least I decided, I didn't like that. It's not that I don't like being someone's soulmate, but what I would prefer is to be the love of the moment. And so what we remind ourselves from time to time is to say, you know, our relationship, it may, it may end. I hope it doesn't. But in this moment, I love you in this moment. You are the love of my moment. And that always reminds me to be present in the moment. 
you know, that's that's a romantic, intimate relationship. But I think it applies to all different types of relationships. We all have friends who we knew from college or high school who have not we've stayed in touch with. But what I try to do is if I get in connection with them again, why can we not just resume and be in connection again? And then I'll see you in two years and we'll reconnect then. And there's no hardship. There's no frustration. There's no angst. I'm going to enjoy being with you in this moment because that's what we have. So that's how I try to think about being in relationship with, with no judgment, things change. And if there's someone I'm thinking about, then I will just, Hey, I'm thinking about you. just want you to know. And whether I connect with them beyond that, who knows, but that's the approach that I've tried to take. Oh my gosh. That is an incredible mindset. You are the love of this moment for me. That's so good. And think about how that applies. That can apply to all of our relationships. What if we go in to our interactions with that? Like I want, I want this to be the love of the moment. And this is part of what really helped me shift my thinking because when I was traveling all the time, you're always on the go. And I always felt like I was getting ready for the next thing. And there's always going to be an element of that because we all have busy jobs that make these demands in our personal lives and all these things. But to really slow down and say, I'm going to be in this moment with this person or my child or my mother I think those instances is what are what we're going to remember. You know, you're not going to remember running to catch the plane. You're going to remember that you sat and had a conversation with your mom about the hardship that she suffered when she got divorced, as an example. So many good takeaways. If our if our listeners want to connect with you beyond this conversation, what's the best way for them to do that? I'm on LinkedIn. I have to admit, I did it off Facebook because it was too political for me. I do have a Twitter account, but I don't really follow it. Um, So LinkedIn is probably the best way. Um, I'm on the luminafoundation.org website too, and there's a link to my email if you want to reach me that way. I'm always happy to connect with someone on LinkedIn. And when we did our panel discussion, Andrea, I had a number of people who reached out to me and we shared messages over LinkedIn. So that's that's an easy way to stay in connection. Well, thank you for providing all these insights today around how to compel people to do something when Without direct authority, you've given us all kinds of insights around how to establish individual relationships and honor each of our relationships, regardless of which stage we're in. And then finally, just being in this moment, that letting this moment be this person, this relationship be the love of each of our moments. I really appreciate that perspective. So thank you, Tim. Thank you, Andrea. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us for this episode. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast to never miss a Being at Work story.